Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm Fiona Sutherland, dietitian from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I interview dietitians from all over the world who are experts in health at every size, the non-diet approach and mindfulness-based practice. These are a collection of interviews by a dietitian for dietitians and nutritionists so that we can build a strong community of wonderful professionals who share an inclusive vision of well-being for everybody in everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series. Today it's my great pleasure to be introducing you to our wonderful colleague Grace Wong who is a registered dietitian and eating disorder specialist from Calgary in Canada. Many of you will already be quite familiar with Grace who pops up really regularly on our Mindful Dietitian Facebook group and who offers some wonderful insights and just spot on observations when it comes to human behavior, both our own and also our interactions with our clients. I just really appreciate great Grace's straight talk, truth speaking, uh, real straight up honesty. And she's not only such a warm and genuine person, but she has a lot of wisdom. She is super smart. And there's so much to just really appreciate Grace's contributions um, to our profession. So I really hope you love this podcast. There'll be lots of names that you can hear pop up. People like Ellen Satter, people like Jess Setnick, uh, people like Molly Kellogg, who have greatly influenced influenced Grace's um, professional life and a lot of ours too. And you'll hear about how their work has been so instrumental in the way Grace works with her clients. So for those of you who aren't already hooked in, we have a Mindful Dietitian Facebook group, which is a closed group specifically for dietitians and health professionals who are interested in the areas of mindfulness-based practice, eating disorders, a body image, a non-diet approach, intuitive eating, and everything in that that vein of practice. So please join us over there. There's lots of um, fabulous and feisty conversations that we have and uh, we'd love to see you. Our main website is www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and there you'll find all kinds of resources, events, um, uh, research, everything that you might need uh, to be a health at every size um, dietitian and, and practitioner. So head over there and see what you can find. You might find something different, something unexpected, uh, and an opportunity to also connect with other colleagues as well. So thanks so much for being here. I really hope you enjoy this interview. And it's a big welcome to Grace. Thank you so much for being here, Grace. Hi, V. It's, it's an absolute honor to be here, and I love your group, and it's the one place, I think I have told you before, that is the one safe place, and one of the few safe places when I can just vent, and I can, I can actually make my internal voice heard, and um, my internal eye rolls can just be there and be <laughs> me, so I love your space, and thank you for, for doing that, and, and having that wonderful space for us to share and, and exchange ideas. Yeah, gosh, you're so welcome, Grace. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, how, um, you know, just by, by able by being able to share um, both our frustrations and our wins and, and our observations, that we can really come together as this incredible community of people. 
Yes, and um, I know we'll get into it later, but one of the things, I, I don't think we talked about it before, but it's our own emotions. Our own emotions in doing this work needs a space, and your space um, provide that platform for us to to be emotional in our work. So, yes. Mm, yeah, it does. I mean, it's such an important part of our work, isn't it? I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to shut off that emotional part of us, then then what are we really teaching our clients? Yes, and um, and um, our our work out. If our clients go through so many emotional stages, and and it moves us, and um, in in eating disorders, but I think just any any other practice area where weight and food is involved, there are emotions, and um, and we're moving emotionally with our clients so we need to take care of our emotions so we can be present and there for for our patients so yes absolutely so i'm all about renting and venting oh i love that renting and venting (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna borrow that if you don't mind go right ahead (laughs) trademarked grace wong (laughs) where shall we start Oh my gosh, so much to talk about. So uh, one thing that, um, Grace, you shared with me before is that you spent some time doing some training with Ellen Satter last year. Mm-hmm. And um, so do you mind maybe telling us a little bit about that and maybe some of the, some of the things that you, that you learned from Ellen? Oh, she is, she's a legend. And um, what I learned from her is, um, it's, well, I learned so many things from her, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk about for one, I first, I really learned from her about um, models, and that's what I find it very helpful, and um, that will tie into our discussion today, is um, I know I've shared with you that I find in my dietetics training, I wasn't trained to understand eating in a context. We, I learned, and I can speak for all dietitians out there, and hopefully that dietetics has, training has, has changed. When I learned, I really learned mostly medical nutrition therapy and which really I actually pull out my textbook in preparing for our interviews like what is what actually is medical nutrition therapy it really is just nutrition interventions um, you know to manage an illness or um, a condition so really it's about fixing something it's fixing an illness and fixing a problem so we so I was trained as a dietitian to fix things and um, and that's really and our intervention is based on the assumptions that we're there to fix things. But we never learn about um, eating behaviors and relationship with food. And, um, and I practice in pediatrics as well. And I never learn about what what is normal behaviors that we expect to see in babies and children and in youth. And all I learned is the plates and um, serving sizes and how many numbers of servings, but that really is, um, and I and I and I don't think it would surprise um, other pediatric dietitians. And I when I say that it's that just doesn't work. We cannot tell a child how to eat, and for many of us who are parents, we know that. And and to really help people to feed their children and build a healthy relationship with food and body, we need to understand the progression of feeding relationship and and our relationship with food and body. And that's not something that was ever taught to us. Um, So what that's is what I really appreciate about um, Ellen. And she taught she taught us the eating competence model. And she also I mean, she's very well known for um, her division of responsibility. And they are compatible. And and which is the beauty of it. She talks about um, 
you know, the division of responsibility. And uh, that's when the, the child's deciding um, whether or how much to eat. And then parents are there to, to, to decide um, what to provide and when and where. But that's also in context of eating competence, which, which is so smart. And we need competent adult, like uh, adult who are competent eater to lead the child towards that phase of having a, um, being a competent eater. That's the end goal. So the vision of responsibility is kind of the feeding dynamics model. It's a path to become a competent eater, but we also need the competent eater there to take leadership. And that's a model that I appreciate um, so much. Um, but in practice, if we're just looking at vegetables and serving sizes, we are ignoring um, the entire development process, um, you know, understanding of, of, of behaviors. And, um, and one thing I know, Ellen, and what I learned, so that's the, what I really appreciate from her is having models um, and, and just that comprehensive understanding of eating behaviors. What I also love about her is her attitude and her yes. the way she speaks about things. You're smiling, Fee. Yeah, yeah. She is so funny. She's awesome. Yeah, and she states things just so matter of fact. And one of the things that she, that I appreciate, it was very interesting is, um, so I was, you know, I already explained the, the vision of responsibility and I'm sure lots of dietitians are familiar with it. Ellen has talked about that, um, but then, and this is quoting her directly, Oversellers, dietitians would put the healthy in the division of responsibility. The word healthy doesn't belong there, doesn't exist there. Ellen Satter never puts it there. If it's there, it's because other people have put in there. And, and that actually is not her model. The reason being, um, her model is based on um, this paradox of um, permission and discipline. So the discipline is if you're feeding yourself faithfully, regularly, you're not restricting yourself and giving yourself permission to eat, you can eat until you're satisfied. You are enjoying your food. You don't have to worry about healthy and unhealthy when we also provide that context for our children, when we provide that leadership. Children can have the autonomy to eat as per those provision, and we don't need the word healthy there. But when we put the word healthy there, we're not respecting her models. And um, and I know she talks about she calls that um, paradigm straddling because that's not that's not um, that's not that's not what she actually teaches. And the lovely way of her putting it is when. When people explain it, I know um, when people say, oh, but this works or we can change it, um, she would say that um, that's okay. If that works for you and you want to teach it that way, that's fine. That's not my model. And that's why she put her name, and which I, I thought is so cool. She put her name to it and said, this is what it is, and you cannot change it. This is the way it is. If you're going to change it, that's fine, but that's not my work. And um, just that firmness and... Um, and assertiveness and confidence in her work is, um, it just, it, it inspires me in so many different ways. And it also uh, speaks to me about that parallel process about setting boundaries too. Like she is setting a boundary and she's saying, she's being very respectful about it, um, but she's also very clear. You know, as you said, she's saying, that's fine. If you want to practice in that way, or you want to speak about it in that way, or you want to use the word quote unquote healthy, 
that's fine, but that is not my model and don't put my name to it. So I really like that. She's, she's living the principles. Yeah. And what I learned from her, I, I, I know I, um, we talked about that too, is she disagreed people in such a um, graceful way. And um, she doesn't get confrontational and she just said, I disagree. And this is what it is. And this is what I believe. And she backed it up and she was explained. That's why she talks about the paradox of why I don't think the word healthy needs to be in there. So she explains it. And, um, and I think, um, it is actually my vision and, or my hope if in the field of dietetics, we can actually go there. If we all can actually say, this is my model, this is what I do, and this is how my practice is based on, and this is your model, then we can sit together and have a conversation. And, and that's fine. If that's the way you do it, I understand your assumptions. And this is why you practice that way. And I may not agree, but I respect that's how you practice and that's how you do it. And this is why I do it this way. Um, I've seen some of her articles where she um, discuss and argue with other researchers and, and she shared those on her website and um, they, their arguments are published publicly like everyone have access to those journal articles can look at how they disagree and I just think that is so beautiful and I think for us as a profession in dietetics if we want to advance our work we need to have more disagreement we need to be able to talk about what we agree and what we don't agree and um, that sharpens um, our theory that sharpens um, our interventions and our work with our clients yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, I'm wondering your thoughts, Grace, because I guess over the past uh, even couple of months, really, what we've been noticing is, especially on uh, different platforms, including Facebook groups, that people are getting very concerned with being nice. Mm -hmm. They're very getting kind of concerned about, um, you know, showing respect. Um, no, sorry, that's that's the not the right way to put it people are more getting concerned about um, being polite and nice and that's overriding our decisions um, with regards to our ability to, to express why we do what we do and why we feel and, and backing that up. Yes and and I I think that it's 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 very challenging learning to disagree and how do we manage conflict it, it is very challenging and I think on the one hand I have um I think it's it's um, to be able to to disagree and manage conflict. It's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of personal work. It's a lot of internal work. And I have to say that I wasn't very good at it. I'm getting better at it. And I was totally um, someone who just liked to make everyone happy and peaceful. And I, I, I was, I, I was a fixer. I think by nature, I am a fixer and I like everyone to be happy. That's my nature. And my best training to tolerate conflict is, um, I had them um, an opportunity to do, um, a therapeutic group with, uh, therapists for four solid years every other week with a group of eating disorder patients. And it's a process group where we talk about body and food. And um, it's like a psychotherapy group, uh, but it's specifically around food and body. That's why I was done by a dietitian and a therapist. And um, I was fortunate to be kind of the anchor dietitian for that period of time. 
there's so many conflicts there. And, um, and it's not always conflicts with me. It could be witnessing people's conflicts. And um, I received a lot of feedback through my supervision. And I have to I have lots of practice is to when I hear people conflict, I need, I become aware that I'm actually really uncomfortable. And I have had lots of experience sitting in um, counseling rooms with parents and children when the two parents disagree how to feed the child with eating disorder. And I always, I feel like my internal um, um, inclination is to like tell them, you know, just hold hands and be okay with each other. But I know that's not what's most therape therapeutically helpful. So um, it's, for me, it's a learning process to tolerate my own discomfort with conflict, then allow people to have those conflicts. And conflicts are uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable, I think, for most people. And I think if there's an adaptive um, value to it, we want to be, you know, pro-social. I mean, that's how we connect and um, we do want to be that. So, but to be aware that when, if we are concerned about always being peaceful and not to raise conflict, we aren't always getting our voices heard. And, uh, and I think there's always a place uh, for conflicts to happen. And if we disagree, as long as we can do it in a way that is professional and respectful, I think that is what's going to advance us professionally. And um, I I got this actually, I, I reflected on this from actually when I had the training with um, Dr. Ivan Eisler. He's at um, the Mosley Hospital um, in UK. And when he came to do training for us, he presented us how the evolution of how we in eating disorder work with families and how this researchers, you know, view, you know, prevails for a certain period of time. And then someone else came in and totally trashed his theory and do something else. I was like, wow, that's right. Like what we have, it's developed from so many people fighting about their theory. And, and then eventually we get to a place. And I think we need to think about our work, not as an endpoint. We are a time and a place in history. We are going to disagree with something from before and we're going to polish and sharpen so that we build something better. And I would say maybe my work today can be polished and, um, and get sharpened by someone else criticizing, but we can, we, we can only grow if, um, if we open ourselves to that, uh, to that possibility. And then, and if we, and if we cannot tolerate the fact that um, we might not see things the same, we will stay. We will stay doing the same thing all the time. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. As you were talking, Grace, I was reflecting um, just last week. I was at our National Eating Disorders Conference, and I went to a, an afternoon workshop on neuroscience, mm -hmm. and we were speaking about um, we were speaking about um, eating disorder psychopathology and uh, and cognitions and behaviours, and then bringing it back to some of the basics of neuroscience. And it was really interesting because the um, the psychologist who was presenting he said something really interesting which really stuck with me, and it was this. He said, "When we do nothing, we're actually doing something." 
in terms of our brain, in, in terms of our brain circuitry. So what he was essentially saying is, you know, when we, uh, when we stick with the status quo, whether that's our own beliefs or whether it's a value system or whether it's a cultural con construct or whatever it is, we're actually strengthening those neural circuits that, uh, that will um, perpetuate that belief or perpetuate that, um, that attitude or, or, or behaviour. It was really, really interesting. And, and I was thinking about that in terms of the parallels of um, quote unquote playing nice and being mm -hmm. nice and being very agreeable. And actually when we do nothing, we're actually doing something. So mm -hmm. I guess I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, we're, we're maintaining status quo, right? So we're, we are, we are keeping things the same. And, um, and when you say nice, I think niceness is a very interesting, um, construct. Yes. And <laughs> typically, if you think about, for those of us who work with disordered eating, I think it's not just eating disorder or disordered eating. Um, we all know and meet people in life that are very nice. And when people think about nice, it's, you know, the definition of being nice is agreeable and pleasant. And, and that's not always helpful. If someone, you know, jumped your queue when you're lining up for coffee at Starbucks, you don't want to be nice about it. You can be respectful and tell them that, no, there's a line, you're not crossing my boundary, but we don't need to be nice about it. And if, um, and I know some of us uh, think about our world, you know, you know, from the feminist perspective, there are populations where we've been kept nice or let's say women our expectations is to be nice and to be agreeable instead of arguing or questioning and and i think even if for people who are not comfortable with maybe disagreeing questioning would be a good place to start and i like i like i was saying earlier i started very being very uncomfortable with conflict so i can see the inclination of wanting to agree and wanting not to um, not like wanting us, you know, to be all a big, happy family. I naturally, my personal life, that's my natural um, personal inclination. I only become um, more comfortable with conflict and disagreement because I had very um, regular practice and lots and lots of supervision and getting lots of feedback uh, around it. And I have lots of feet. I have lots of support too. I was telling you that when I practice in that group, I had a very skilled therapist who do with me. So I, I do recognize that, yes, we do need to disagree, but we also, uh, we can also start from somewhere, maybe start from questioning and, or maybe when we start to see things that we're like, Oh, that's uncomfortable. We can just start with, acknowledging and and recognizing those those discomfort um and the other thing i find is very important to recognize is um what we do clinically doesn't feel nice and i'm i i probably think that um some of the listeners who also practice um doing the more emotional work can can relate to this it's very uncomfortable to um do the work we do in in a non with a non-diet approach when everyone in this world believe dieting works or tells us that we can diet to fit in certain standards to walk that path to tell people differently it's very uncomfortable um, I think about um, as a health professionals if we believe in non-diet approach we need to be able to stand behind that 
let's say in a rounds discussion, maybe when you're having a discussion with a physician, um, or when you even make that recommendation to, uh, to a patient, or when your patient come in very keenly um, wanting to lose weight, whether they're already in your office or they're making that discovery call and wanting to find out your approach, it takes a lot of um, tolerance for that discomfort to state um, what we believe and do that. And if we're not able to tolerate that discomfort within ourselves, it's it's really hard to be there for our patients um, when they're doing the clinical work with us. I think about um, situations, uh, patients come back and say, you know, I went to Christmas dinner and so-and-so made a comment about my body or um, a family member suggested to me that maybe I should do this, you know, maybe I should lose weight or that outfit doesn't look very nice on my body. To stand against all those things, um, it's very uncomfortable and, um, and our patients might need to um, give out, you know, give, um, if, um, to compromise that niceness a little bit to have their voice. So um, I think as clinicians, that's a very important um, skills to to develop but it's it's incredibly hard so what do you think apart from that therapeutic um process that you that you were involved in you know with the group if somebody didn't have the opportunity to have that kind of experience are there other ways um, that you think that people can develop this sense of just being able to be more observant of our own experience excuse me experiences to be able to um, develop a sense of acceptance around discomfort and that and that discomfort actually is one of the major paths to forward movement and to and to change and shift yeah I I think well yeah so besides that I, I mean I think supervision I know we talked a lot about that in a lot of our groups it is really valuable because it takes sometimes takes another person to help you and I think that information doesn't just quite go there you actually need the here and now in the room but I would say to, to start with even just some of these discussion noticing what happens within ourselves so um, I, I have I have had the opportunity to 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 train some dietitians in my in my um, work in eating disorder, one thing that I one of the things I always talk about is like you have the two antenna. You have an, an external one where you're always sensing your patients, um, their nonverbal cues, what they're what they're saying. You're receiving what they're saying, and then we have we need another set of antenna inward. Um, this is such a dated um, analogy. Fee. I'm just thinking. You no, know I'm loving it. It's great. <laughs> A lot of people, like the younger dietitians, probably are like antenna. <laughs> but what does that word mean? <laughs> yeah. So, but but it's and then another set of antenna going inward. When so and so said this, what's happening to my gut? That inkling feeling, and it's that intuition that I know when we talk about um, mindfulness or um, intuitive eating, we talked about that intuition. We need to develop that intuition and a start from, I know you do a lot of work on mindfulness. So it's notice and awareness is that internal um, reception of what is going on inside me. When so-and-so said that, something um, strike a chord and be curious about what is that? Oh, that's 
you know, made me feel sad or that made me feel very uncomfortable and and that pause and, and questioning. Um, and if we need to, we can go um, and talk to someone. Um, yeah, and I would say that that is uh, that is always a good place to start. Mm-hmm. I love that. I'm gonna. I I, I always uh, really enjoy hearing different people's stories and analogies. And I'll be I'll be really honest. I steal them. I just take them and, and run with it. <laughs> so I think that's the second one uh, from you, Grace. So thank you so much for that uh, very precious, very precious gift. Um, it's interesting to think about, you know, um, I guess that, um, you know, that body-led intuitive, um, you know, that sense of um, that some more somatic approach and what, what, uh, what our sense of wisdom tells us about how we can best take care of ourselves. And yet, you know, our training is really co- cognitive, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. and, and when we give out handouts and, you know, do all that kind of stuff, we're really in a way, doing a lot more of the cognitive stuff. So I guess I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts as to how we can just create awareness of our tendencies and maybe our habits to keep coming back to the cognitive when actually that part, particularly in us and in our clients, is it's often overdeveloped anyway and how we can kind of really calm that down a little and come back into that sense of knowing and that sense of of trust I guess that comes from stepping away from the cognitive um yeah and it's again it's so interesting I I'm like a very lucky person I always say I'm very fortunate and lucky to have met lots of lots of great teachers and have taught me lots of great things one of the things that um uh that I learned from a supervisor is we need to move emotionally with our thoughts and cognition and we cannot change and learn just by reading and and knowing um one of i remember when i did one of my training with um with a dietitian she asked me she has this list of questions so grace if so and so said this what do i say if so and so said this what do i do so she had um done some appointments and then she wasn't really sure what to do so she came up with this list of questions and um and those are truly difficult dilemmas and when we when i debrief with her i i found myself asking her um, lots of questions because I really find she was looking for a set of standards or like resources and lists that I can give to to the family and it's one of probably one of the most common things I get uh, I used to work in um, um, uh, an eating disorder multi-level care in uh, sort of our, our region so we get lots of consultations from other areas and one of the most common things that people ask for is do you have handouts that we can give and that's when I realized I don't do handouts. The reason is I find the information people know already. And what is really powerful is not the information, is it's our emotional understanding of the of the uh, the information. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that I think we all experience is clients always come back to wanting to go back to a diet, wanting to lose weight. And um and we just we just don't stop looking for a solution. Um, one of the really critical stage I find that help people to get past this is not to throw more information at them, is to experience their frustration and disappointment and pain with them. And a very important part of the process is reaching the point of futility. 
it's that point of feeling like there's nothing I could do to fix this. And because what they're trying to fix is not it's not the weight, it's not the body, it's the shame, it's the body shame, it's the desire to be loved and all those things. And um, and and that cannot be fixed by a handout. So as long as they still believe there is a way for me to get these, they're going to go back to, to the diets because between the frustration of diet, as much as we know how frustrating dieting can be and the negative consequences between that and those very important things to be loved to be accepted um not to be loved and not to be accepted are probably worse so until we get to a point of the the feeling knowing that i've exhausted all my options it's really hard to start wondering maybe i cannot keep doing it um one of those things i i know i have shared with you phoebe before is i always i'm i i just can't even bring myself to look at those posts sometimes i get people share about it and, and they talk about how, how ridiculous those things are. It's people keep coming up with new ways to lose weight. You know, those things mm -hmm. in the stomach or attaching something to leak food in there. Like, I don't even know. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't, I don't want to waste my time reading <laughs> about yeah. them. But we are still looking for solutions and we try food, we try exercise, so none of those working with technology. Now we're trying to do these, all these weird things, try to help people to lose weight. So I think until we stop doing that, um, people are not going to realize we can't, like their weight loss is not really the solution, but we're still presenting. And I think that's, that's why it's important for us um, dietitians, therapists, or um, other health professionals who, who really want to advocate for health at every size to recognize um, we need to help people to, to see um, the futility of dieting and and looking at our body as a way to get to those other emotional substance that we're trying to get and um but to feel futile it's extremely painful to to get to that stage and they and our patients need us to be there imagine if you feel futile about something and you're on your own it's really hard and we want to make that feeling go away. So we need people there to be with us, to witness and say, yes, um, this is really painful. I wish you don't have to go through this and um, I, I'm sorry and we're here together. And that is so important, um, but because we're a trained as fixer, so, so it's easy for us as dietitians um, to go back to look for let's let me look at another solution to see is there one new way that I can try to help you and just keep throwing solutions um, um, I know uh, one of the example that I another example I'll use is um, um, I work a lot with um, uh, and I know you've also uh, talked about that in the podcast is we work with lots of adults and children who are who have a strong family history of dieting. Um, it's it run in their family lineage and, and it's so hard to move away from, from dieting. And part of the reason is if that's what you were told as a child, if you've been repeatedly told as a child that um, you need to lose weight to be loved, to, to be a better person, um, even though you might not be adults may not be saying those words directly often the child will interpret it that way mm -hmm. is that um 
mom's telling me that I need to lose weight. Mom needs to tell me to be careful with my eating. So they will internalize this information. And, um, and that there is a loyalty that is formed in there. And I learned this from um, working with uh, therapists who are very grounded in family systems theory is this loyalty is very difficult to break. And we may be able to go there cognitively to say, um, no, I, I know that's not right. I know my mom died and, and I, 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 she's a loving person. And so I'm trying to do something different. And we can go there in a cognitive level, but emotionally, we all have a part that we want to connect with our parents. So we really don't want to give up that connections or we don't, we still really want to in a subconsciously level to please them that way. So what we, I find in clinically, what we need to do uh, often is to create a bit of a distance for um, the person to get upset, to get frustrated um, with that and, and to be upset and frustrated with key attachment figure is very difficult mm -hmm. and that's why I hear often hear from patients say oh I know my mom put me on diet and that was hurtful but you know I know she means well and of course you know um you know explaining and but how do we hold a, a place that we don't blame the parents but create enough distance for our patients to get upset and experience the full spectrum of emotions um it's painful to get the message from our parents. So we need to be present instead of giving them more readings to do because readings are words and they understand uh, pain are so deep and, and pain that come from our families are so deep and um, paralyzing. The only way we can change it is, is through processing that. And, um, and that's what I work with therapists who have the skills to do that or, you know, either with me or, or I do part of it, they do part of it, or we do it together or separately. Mm. So it sounds as if you've had some really valuable learning experiences that have allowed you to deepen and broaden your understanding of, of, um, of people's um, own lived experiences, um, both, uh, both in terms of their own lives and the insight um, the insight that can be gathered from understanding that my own experience doesn't exist in isolation. You know, that my own experience is actually a product of um, not only living in this culture, but then also living in a, a family or a community where where certain messages were sent to me. And it's a normal human experience to internalise those and for those to then very much determine our, our attitudes, beliefs and behaviours and particularly when it comes to the way that we relate to our body. So particularly struck me when you were talking about, um, you know, creating a space where people feel as if they have permission to feel all the feelings, including being angry. Because what I notice in a lot of my clients and the groups I work with is that when anger is um, anger is directed back in towards ourselves, then that seems to perpetuate that deep sense of shame, which a lot of people experience as really paralyzing. And it really doesn't, doesn't help them um, to be able to understand their experience in the broader context of, you know, 
their family upbringing or of this culture that we live in and instead it seems to create this loop of shame you know where it's just hard to see beyond beyond dieting I guess yes and, and for example again going back to the parent child an uh, example we always assume our parents are right like when we are when we are That's a so child we, of yeah. course right they are our safe haven so we would always assume that they're right so if mom's telling me that my body's wrong of course it's wrong and if mom's telling me i need to be careful with my diet implying that i cannot eat more than this if i do of course i'm wrong so now as adults if we need to change that and those messages come in such early life for a lot of our clients and those are our formative years so um it's like layered in the basic understanding of our world so to move away from that we need to feel those anger and um yeah exactly like you talked about like we need to have a space to feel that anger and know that that's not correct because if it's not if that's not wrong if my if they're not wrong if i am not upset with them it must be me Yes. So we maintain that the problem and the shame is is about ourselves versus that um, that act of being put on diet is it's abusive. It's wrong. It's not okay. And and we need to say that and not to make anyone bad or guilty. And sometimes it's just able to remove that. Know that you we need to get to feel that full range of emotions so that we can reconnect with those people so uh, i know a common example and i spoke to it's it's mom because it's it's truly very common it's we love our moms so we don't want to make them our bad guys and we don't want to make them villains and they really aren't but is that again um able to differentiate they are loving moms and they that might be the best that they know it could be that our the grandmas were dieting, so that's the best that they know, and they try to give us the best, is to understand that, but not let that be a filter or a barrier so that we have the full permission to to get as angry as we need to be and as hurt as we need to be. Um, and then after we experience it and we understand and we get to that point of fertility, then we can reconnect with those people and and now that we are adults we have capacity to uh it's it's a little you know different you know, between youth and adults but for the adults um they can often reconnect those relationships but they often need room to figure it out on their own and and sometimes they do need that distance um to heal and not to say that they don't connect with these people ever in their lives. And so many people keep these people in their lives and have loving, thriving relationship. It's just that I would even argue to experience those full um, range of emotions allow us to have those authentic, genuine relationships. Yes. You're yes. not setting. You're not sitting with um, this subdued anger um, at Christmas dinner because your mom is. You see that your mom is on whatever diet and you hear you see what she's doing and then you're sitting thinking oh mom's food issues and how it's impacted me and those unprocessed feelings sit there it does not allow us to connect with those people in an authentic way versus mm -hmm. if we are able to move past those feelings of thoroughly process and understand all of these is for my feelings coming up and know what to do and um and and i 
unprocessed feeling doesn't come back like strike as the way it does as unprocessed feelings. So, um, so you can sit there and have compassion for uh, for your family or those important people in your life. Yeah, it also. Um as you were talking, I was thinking about two separate things. I'll try and keep them. I'll try and bookmark them in my brain, which is, for me, that's sometimes a little bit tricky to do. The first thing I was thinking of, Grace, is what a great gift that is um, in terms of reducing risk of relapse and in terms of strengthening um, resilience to be in a culture where we're not going to all of a sudden live in a bubble of, of um, non-diet and body acceptance. We are actually going to be living actively in a world and in a culture which will continue to send these messages. And that really just strikes me as a, a beautiful way to strengthen our ability to say, that's enough, that's not for me, or I'll have a little bit more of that, or, you know, kind of similar to food in a way, you know, understanding our boundaries and being able to strengthen that part of us that is able to say, I'll have a little bit more of that, and I'll have, um, oh, that's enough, I've, I think I've had enough of that for now. Um, so, yeah, that, that as you were talking, I was like, oh, that just really sounds like a beautiful way to reduce risk of relapse. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely, because there are so many triggers mm -hmm. in our world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the second thing I was thinking of, and I'm very lucky to be able to retrieve this particular bookmark. The second thing as you were talking, I was thinking, wow, how interesting this is to reflect on our own training. You know, our own training as being, uh, as giving us certain messages and certain messages not only about um, being people, but also professionals and, and, um, and uh, the information that we quote unquote should be giving to people and, and what it means to be a, um, again, quote unquote, good enough dietitian. You know, what does that mean? And, and what does that mean for us as um, people and professionals, especially with the way we interact with one another? So as you were talking, I was like, wow, this is really, you know, being in the non-diet realm is really about being able to give ourselves permission to be a bit pissed, you know, about some of the messages that we've been given and absorbed, really. I mean, I'll put my hand up and say, I absorbed that shit hook, line and sinker. Um, but then it was only through uh, my own discomfort and my own questioning that I was like, Ugh something doesn't feel right. So it's interesting to think about it from that perspective in terms of our training and then and then only having the space to be able to reflect that, oh, something's wrong. <laughs> yes, and exactly. And I, I agree. And I think um, for us dietitians, we came from those training. I know we, I talked about medical nutrition therapy. Mm -hmm. That's those are our formative years as dietitians. Mm -hmm. um, and those are beliefs that we were given um, by, by professors who taught us what they knew best. So it's not that they meant anything wrong, like all of us coming to the profession wanting to, to do good. So those are the best that we know. So, um, but yes, and, and we need to move away from, from that and, and we need to have emotions. And, and that's why, you know, the space, you know, in the groups where we can express and, and we need our own emotions need, need space to be taken care of too. Um, so that we get pissed off about like, I sometimes feel like, I remember there are times where I felt so useless and thinking like, 
this is not helping anyone. Why am I doing this? And people are like driving, you know, 45 minutes here, pay for hospital parking and hospital is so confusing to navigate. And they found my room and I'm telling something that isn't very helpful. And I went home thinking like, I, that's not good. And that's not good enough. And um, yeah, and I, I um, there are two times in my entire career that I honestly was about to quit being a dietitian because I was like, I don't know whether I'm really good at it or it's or like, this is not like what I want to do. Um, actually, the first time is I thought I sucked at my job. Um, and I it was an internship, I felt like I could not do anything. I was just, I just, I had no interest and I felt like I cannot do this. I hate calculating calories oh and I God, hate, yeah. yeah. And uh, I hate calculating carbs. I hate teaching carb counting and, and I don't, I'm not good at it. So I, I honestly was, I, I signed up for grad school planning to, that was my exit strategy. Um, I was planning to quit being a dietitian after grad school. And, uh, but it was interesting that um, after I finished grad school, I need a job to wait for, another job to open up like um my my grad training was in um social determinants of health and that's what i oh wow oh awesome yeah yeah Yeah. and uh, i was looking for a job that i could do more community development really advocating for social determinants of health but then i need to pay tuition and everything so i walk into an eating disorder job and um and that kept me there so that was the first time that i i didn't I almost quit and I didn't. Uh, and the second time was uh, was actually um, after I left my eating disorder job, but I, I won't get into that today. But uh, but yes, I think there were many times in my career where I really questioned, but that was the motivating factor for me to really question and change um, what I do. And I think that's why, yes, we also need to get pissed off or we need to develop our feelings and allow our feelings to, to come through. Um, and as we practice, um, those emotional places are still important for us. Um, mm-hmm. I know many of us who practice with a health exercise or um, um, non-diet stance feel very challenged on a day-to-day basis. And I always say, think, you know, haste is the is the path that is less traveled, is the path that's less paved and less accepted. And it's incredibly difficult to keep doing it. And and we need to deal with those emotions on a regular basis to keep doing it or else we get so frustrated and um, and we can't keep doing it. Um, and I know people feel um, feel discouraged often and um, and that's why we need we need to allow our emotions to come through and 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 understand that those feelings are normal and it yes. doesn't mean that you're doing a crappy job as a dietitian it's just that it's just very hard to to say things that are different from the mainstream culture but yeah. we just need to keep doing it <laughs> Yeah, we need to keep going. Absolutely. And that's, that's the, uh, that's the power of community too, is if you know that you're not alone, um, similar to, similar to the people that we're working with, uh, our clients who are really um, trying to move forward and up and out of diet culture or their eating disorder, um, their eating disorder behaviours, 
that, you know, creating a sense of community around us, for me, I'm not sure about you, Grace, but for me, it just helps me feel um, stronger knowing that when I use my voice, I'm not alone. And even when it's not well received or not received in a way that, that I would prefer it to, um, that it's okay as long as I'm kind of living my truth and speaking my truth in a way that is um, not, uh, not aggressive or not strident or not, um, or not, um, you know, uh, not going to upset people, I suppose, or not going to, you know, oh, hello, Grace's daughter has joined us. Hello, sweetie. What do you think this about Riley and Toby and they, they just, however way they broke through the door. <laughs> <laughs> we love having, we love having kids on our podcast. It's really exciting. <laughs> well, sorry, Fee, I actually just missed the last point that you were saying just because I was distracted by them. No, not at all. I think it's interesting to observe, you know, that when we're speaking with other people, whether that's in a group or, um, you know, a group of professionals or um, to individuals that, you know, to be able to, um, to be able to make sure we remember that we are part of a community where we're not by ourselves any longer, um, that there are other people, you know, doing this alongside of us. And that can offer us great strength and courage, actually, to, to be able to keep going. Because like you, oh my gosh, when you said, I hate counting calories, I hate doing this, I hate doing that, and I'm going to quit. Well, I think well, I know for a fact that you're not alone. So I love, I love to use the slogan, non-diet approach, saving dietitians worldwide. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Fee. I think I, I really agree with you. And um, health of every size and non-diet approach are new. Are, I mean, newer if you look at you know, the history of dietetics. Um, we're so used to be trained differently and we're trying to to come up with what to do clinically using these concepts. So we are all new in this and we're all trying new things. And I'm very fortunate that I was able to learn from lots of great teachers and, um, you know, dietitians that you had interviewed previously, let's say, um, Jessica Setnick and um, Molly Kellogg. There's so many uh, leaders that taught us so many things and, and we are you know, we are inventing our own and we're incorporating new things, but we're still changing and we're learning new things. And I think it's important that um, people who come after us are newer dietitians and research inform what we do and we open to disagreement. So I disagree with maybe some of the um, assumptions of medical nutrition therapy um, in certain practice areas. I, I actually think, you know, medical nutrition therapy is great for certain acute clinical settings if someone is on TPN, let's say, right? Um, but then maybe when it comes to um, weight issues, then that's not the way to approach it. Um, and New, newer dietitians, next generation of dietitians or new research can inform our practice or it doesn't have to be new. Like we can continue to have these conversations and say, oh, you know what, Grace, what you said last month doesn't make sense because look, this is what we learn and, and let's continue to have that conversation and let's make our discussion um, not personal. It's not about any one of us. It's about really wanting to do the best for um, for the people we serve and um, so that we strengthen our, our profession so that um, people value what dietitians bring to table. I, I've met a lot, a lot of great dietitians, um, but at the same time, I've also met clients who don't feel satisfied. Um, so I think it's so important that uh, I, I think 
dietitians have so much to offer, but we sometimes might not be informed in certain things that um, that we can actually do better service for our clients. So we can elevate the profession. We can elevate each other by keep sharpening each other's skills and practice. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really good. So creating a community where we can all support each other to feel the feels, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just deepen and, and broaden and widen um, our perspective through learning, mm-hmm. through learning from one another. And I guess part of that is also not being locked into one way of um, thinking and being because as you and I both know through our careers that what we understand it changes over time and if we get too locked into the science and too locked into stuff then it kind of blocks us from learning in a way and it's it's interesting because I've been reflecting a lot lately uh, because I'm involved in a couple of different sectors of dietetics so one Mm -hmm. of them being sports sports and performance nutrition another one being eating disorders and then a third one which is not um, I don't see as separate from sport or eating disorders but more being health at every size and non-diet type of Mm -hmm. um, folk interestingly it I'll take sport for an example. Now, I'm not sure what it's like in Canada, but um, on the whole, in Australia, sports dietitians, we, we get along really well, like really well. We've all got a lot of respect for one another and the work that we do. And yet some of the um, principles that we use are really different. You know, we, we, we come from different kind of schools of thought. Maybe um, we, we, our, uh, applications to practice really differ from one person to the next and yet we're able to sit in the same space in a really reflective um, in a really reflective way and it's not dissimilar maybe in eating disorders as well where we don't necessarily all agree with what each other do does or says or the way in which we practice we've all got um, very very similar um, values in terms of we want our client we want the best for our client absolutely we want them to live with ease we want them to enjoy well-being and life without the um without the struggles of the eating disorder and yet it's really interesting that when it comes to um quote unquote weight we have these camps and it's you know where people feel compelled to take a stand and to like pitch a tent in a certain camp so i'm curious about your thoughts as to you know in some sectors of dietetic work we seem to be able to sit with a little bit more ease whilst knowing that um, other people are doing things differently and that seems okay but when it Mm -hmm. comes to weight it feels really I don't know it feels people get very upset and you know over enthusiastic or you know it feels different somehow yeah I think just weight is just such a sensitive emotional topic I know I come Mm -hmm. back to emotions because weight brings up so many emotions even Mm -hmm. just not dietitians anywhere you bring up the word weight like everyone's you know, change and their demeanor change. So, yeah, I, 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 I agree. And, um, and I, I mean, I know I have, I get emotional about this topic because I've seen so many people get hurt and it messes with people's lives and, um, it's miserable. So I think it brings up emotions in, in us and that's why we feel passionate. Um, Something else that I I also want to bring up is actually interesting is I think we have become more aware of being patient-centered 
Yes. And one thing I hear often in weight-related conversation is if this is what patients want, yes. yeah. um, we are providing patient-centered care or um, or using, um, sometimes I wonder, like I, I've heard people talked about well, when we use motivation interviewing, um, they're using those open-ended questions, they want to find out clients' goals and they want to meet clients' goals. But I think there is a confusion there. Motivation interviewing does not necessarily always mean do what the patient asks. That's right. Um, it's, it, it's also a lot of drilling and exploring what does the patient really want and, and, and having the process um, of sitting and wondering and pull out all those, you know, all those factors that feeds into just when this person walk in and say she wants to lose, he or she wants to lose weight, what are all those underlying factors? It's not only asking you know, what do you want, it's not just asking those, you know, decisional balance, those grid. There's a lot more that is in depth, but um, but I, I think for for at least something that sometimes I've noticed is we really want to help people. So yes. when people come and ask and, and they're desperate and they really want that, um, we want to, to help them. We, we are, I know, like I told, I said it so many times, I'm a fixer. I can fix this for you. And um, so we want to provide the quote unquote patient centered care. So we go there, um, but we also know it does damage. So um, yeah, I don't have a good answer for you, Fee, but I, I know I also feel that way, but I also think there's just so many, so many things at stake and it's just such a mm. emotional topic. And um, I think we as a field just still need to continue to process more, talk a lot more about it and argue and, 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 talk about it, you know, get to the details. And I think, um, for example, when I talk, I, I think for those of us who practice non-diet, we cannot just only talk about the approach. Those that that's important, the principles are important, but we also need to get to the science. So I can talk about why um, uh, someone who pursues weight loss is gonna get into a weight cycle. I can talk about metabolism, I can talk about the starvation, I can quote the key studies. All those are important. So we need to continue to get to those points and also talk about that um, so that we can continue moving forward. So it's not, so there's emotion part, but we also talked about why and, and get to the, the science more. And I think if we really dig deep um, to those points, weight loss will not stand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like there's no science really backed up sustainable weight loss mm -hmm. no there's none at all yeah and i and so i think if we if we can have more open respectful discussion um and continue to to drill those conversations i think we would be able to get to a place where we can um be less you know confrontational or you know feeling as uncomfortable in 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 going there Mm -hmm. And that's why I think space like your group and some other platforms are, are important. And um, it would be great, you know, if we can come to a place where I can say, I practice from a haste approach and this is why, and this is why I approach this case this way. And someone say, well, my 
um, I'm informed by these principles and that's why I recommend it this way, then we can have tangible things that we can talk about yes. instead of, um, you know, when we talk about weight, you know, we hear all these, you know, things from uh, uh, the clients tell us that, you know, physicians or other healthcare professionals might have told them, you know, um, you know, they just talk about weight, like they don't talk about anything besides that there's something wrong with weight, really, there's nothing else. Yeah, so when we're drilling down beneath that, what we're seeing is a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of quite complex factors. That if we're able to um, if we're able to tease those apart and help people understand and recognise um, and acknowledge what lies underneath weight concern, both at, from a professional perspective and from a client or, or um, consumer perspective, then we're actually able to get somewhere. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah and I think we're at a very you know we're it's always exciting when we're taking new directions trying yes, new things but it's also difficult because it's uncertain so yeah it's daunting us, yeah. yeah and 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 for those of us who are trying to do non-diet when we have not had a lot of support you question it am I doing this right and you we are sitting with the uncertainty and also when we work with bodies there's a lot of uncertainties. We are we are not certain what happens with people's bodies. So we need to sit with the uncertainties. And uncertainties are very uncomfortable. Nobody likes uncertainty. Well, I can't say, I shouldn't say that, but I know I don't like uncertainty. <laughs> I know I don't like uncertainties. Mm -hmm. So to be presented at work and and wanting to be professional for very good reasons and like saying that some things are uncertain are very difficult and how do we sit with the clients in uncertainty are are very difficult and um and if we have so we want to go back to certainty so if we can do weight loss if we can prescribe weight loss if we can help people just to do it this way to follow this diet will give you this outcome um that's why it's so seductive because uh, it seems to be it, it seems to be um, it seems to be certain which we know it's not um, but it's more appealing than sitting with uncertainty of um, telling the patient your patient that I don't know what this yeah. looks like I'm be with you along this journey and um, and when the person shows up you know with anger or whatever feeling it is saying like I'm paying you this money and you're telling me uncertain how do you work with that right so so it's it very it's very difficult but also I, I also also believe that um, as dietitian we do not typically get enough training to know how to deal with this yeah Oh, yeah, 100% agree. 100% agree with that because it's actually our own work, isn't it? To be able to sit in a room with somebody who is who is really struggling and as you say, you know, a lot of us, we're fixers. You know, we, we, don't, we don't like seeing people um, suffer or struggle. So for us to be able to... Um, to be able to sit alongside somebody who's struggling whilst not... whilst leaning into the urges I suppose to to say things or to um, or to give them something tangible like a like a handout or something that's mm -hmm. tough and that's the work isn't it like that's the work it's almost like the first maybe five years of uh, when we graduate we kind of need <laughs> it's like postgraduate therapy we almost need to be therapy don't we but mm -hmm. that's the beautiful thing about about the Hayes community is there's so much learning that can go on 
if we're willing to um, if we're willing to uh, listen to the people that have gone before us and and to listen to the lessons um, that are so uh, rich and wonderful uh, for the for all the people that have done the hard work before um, and to suspend our own judgment and urges both towards ourselves and our clients then oh my goodness the the path is feels never-ending it's actually really exciting but at the same time it's that same thing it's it's a bit scary it's like oh you know there is no end it's like oh just keep yeah, let's keep going okay we're all in a big group and let's keep going let's keep plugging away Yes, and I and I think those changes are happening mm -hmm. small. And with technology, I, I do think it actually helps us to grow much faster. You know, the knowledge that you share from Australia, we can see it in Canada here and same with other places. So I, I do think the message are are spreading and there's so many other platforms to to grow and, and I, I it is my my vision and, and hope that um, we can get more support to to do this work and um, I, I really I, I felt so unsupported as uh, as a new dietitian and um, so yeah I really do hope that uh, as the profession grows uh, we start teaching dietitians differently we start giving them skills differently um, instead of going through chapters of teaching I still remember my lessons of clinical nutrition the first lesson we learn about reflux and GI and the second lesson we learn about renal I really hope that there are more options or more it's presented and um, yeah and and also the, the skills part how, how we develop how we support each other and, and develop those um, those skills and I I, I I still feel I'm so fortunate I'm really hoping one day eventually that I can also you know um, pay for it and, and help other di dietitians to grow in those um, areas because it's so valuable. But I find certain things, it sounds very cliche, but I also feel comes with life experience. Yeah, it um, does. It does. You're right. And it's, it, it's that um, I believe in a lot of the lessons that we, that we go through with patients, we need to do that in life. Um, I, I talked about, you know, my own discomfort with uncertainties, my own discomfort with conflict. Um, there's one other thing that I, I've worked on, I've done a lot of work over the last few years is I um, I was actually uh, a perfectionist for a very long time. Um, this come from, um, I, I actually, in my own supervision, I've learned a lot about how I become a perfectionist, but I really, my perfectionism really got challenged when my second child came along. And I was still managing when I had one child. I was able to multitask and able to those different things with my organization skills. But when my second child came along, I really have to um, look at my own perfectionism. And I find it so helpful um, to do that work myself. And, and to be truthfully, I mean, it's the reason that I, I become aware of my perfectionism is because I work with clients with a lot of perfectionism and and when we talk about those clinical constructs at work I start saying oh I'm just as a perfectionist in some ways and when I do that work in life um, it helps me in my clinical work and and I think all the things that we preach and teach our clients it's so important to to strive to do that in in our own life and um, it I that's the only way we can take clients to those places so um, you know even though it sounds really cliche I also think that certain capacity just come with 
time and being human and going through mess and um, failing and knowing that I had made mistakes and to to know that right I really screw up yeah right right I love all that I'm just like soaking up soaking up the wisdom of grace soaking it all up oh there's so much there grace I really loved how you talked about you know the the dreams you know moving forward for the profession and and then also the the value of being able to have um uh, you know be, be able to press pause and and be reflective and to be able to learn because it takes a lot of courage to be reflective I think and um, to understand our own humanity you know and with that humanity comes a willingness to to take a look both at the things that we that we do well and also the things that can help to strengthen that can strengthen us um, in terms of our work life and, and personal life and yeah I really relate to the uh, perfectionism bit I've got I've got what I think you would call selective perfectionism, which is, um, you know, in certain areas of my life and then in other areas, I don't know what you call the anti-perfectionist, but I just really, not, nah, just the heart's not in it. Yes. <laughs> so it's a, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a, it's the gift that keeps on giving, unfortunately. But anyway, <laughs> oh, look, Grace, it's just been so amazing to chat with you today. And um, it's, it's been so lovely to get to know you a lot more through, um, through our Facebook page, our group, um, and the blessings of the internet thank goodness so um from australia to canada you know sending a big big giant hug and um i'm just so grateful for for you giving your time and energy today so just thank you thank you so much and i want to i want to also invite you to um you know how can people find you have you got a website you know etc etc right um so i have a facebook um page and i don't have a lot on my facebook page um this is my little story about um not being perfectionistic i launched my private practice a few years ago and um and uh, i told you earlier Fee, that i have uh two really young kids and um and trying to not to be perfectionistic and criticize and criticize myself for not having a website and being balanced in life. I decide I just need that work life balance. And Absolutely. so I don't have a website and I still don't. And I'm acutely aware people say that you, you, when you don't have a website, your business is not legitimate these days. But oh, I'm, what? yeah, I hear that all the time. But you know, I'm like, okay, you know what? That's totally fine. The part of the reason I launched my private practice is, um, I want to do whatever I want with my patient. Yeah. Uh, Why I, does that I, not surprise me, Grace? Why exactly. does that not surprise I, me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I find uh, working in a system, we have limitations. And, mm -hmm. and I was mm -hmm. at a point where I really want to be more creative with my work. And mm -hmm. so, um, and also want to be able to take time off whenever I want to take my kids to appointments. So I launched my private practice for that personal reason and also for that work reason. And um, so it's really an experiment. So over the, the course of doing a private practice, I, I've broken a lot of rules that people say you need to do that to have a business. But because this is my little experiment, I just do whatever I want. So I have a Facebook page and um, so that's my the backstory of that. Um, but yeah, I can, um, so my, uh, I can, I send you the link to my Facebook. So I, my um, name is just Grace Wong, RD, MSC. Um, I, I put my credential in there because um, Grace Wong is actually a very common name. Um, Wong is one of probably the most common last name um, in, on our planet. Okay. So yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, so, uh, but I will share that link and I'd love to connect with other like-minded dietitians and engage in conversations. Absolutely. And come into that brave space and have a convo with, uh, with Grace. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Thanks again so much, Grace. I'll see you um, online and, you know, hopefully sometime in the near future we might get to hang out. I know. I look forward to meeting you and some of our fellow dietitians that I meet on the virtual space. And thank you for having me. So nice to meet you and talk to you. Thank you for having me, Pete. You're so welcome. And we'll see you all on the next episode of The Mindful Dietitian. Thanks, Grace. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone. Mm -hmm.